Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. You've tuned into a Bully Pulpit special series for Symposium One, which the Hebrew Union College convened in New York City in November of 2016. Symposium One was organized around the theme of crafting Jewish life in a complex religious landscape. We at the Bully Pulpit had the privilege of interviewing some of the outstanding thinkers who participated in Symposium One, and we think you'll enjoy the conversation. It's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Janet Walton, who is Professor of Worship at Union Theological Seminary, a storied institution here in New York, and she is past president of the North American Academy of Liturgy, among other posts she's held, and author of numerous books, including Worship and Art, A Vital Connection. And Professor Walton is a Roman Catholic and a member of the Sisters of the Holy Names, a congregation of Catholic women. Dr. Walton, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Let's um, dive in and talk about some of the uh, themes and ideas that have motivated your work. One of them is interfaith worship, not just interfaith dialogue, which I think a lot of people have heard as a term, but the idea of interfaith worship, which is challenging. So I want to ask, how challenging is it? How far can it be stretched? Is it able to bridge communities, for example, that conceive of themselves as praying to a different god or gods? Can it bridge that big a divide, or, or what are its limits, what are its possibilities? In terms of interfaith worship, which I think is really crucial for communities of people to engage, it is very difficult but it's not any more difficult than our trying to talk to people across other kinds of boundaries, social boundaries, political boundaries, medical boundaries, all kinds of boundaries. And so I take interfaith worship as a very serious challenge in order to actually make it happen. I can give you an example. A couple of years ago, a colleague and I We're planning an interfaith worship service to conclude the big conference on climate change. It was an international conference. It had the president of the UN coming to it. I don't like to waste time, and I wasn't really interested in just making a big kind of show of all these uh, world leaders. But I thought if something should happen, among us. Something should happen if we're all getting together and talking about climate change. So I was working on this with my colleague Troy Messenger and the cathedral staff at St. John the Divine in New York City. It was notoriously difficult because people really could not come into some common language, either in terms of sound or in terms of the words we used. But we had this one wonderful moment, and that was each person came in with a a big piece of stone. Actually, we gave them big pieces of stone as they came into the cathedral. They fit into your hand, but they weren't easily fit. That was big. And it was meant to be, remind us of the foundation of the earth, rock. There was a place in the service where all the guests, these leaders, took this rock. Sometimes they brought it from their home countries. I mean, it was a serious symbol in this uh, interfaith worship. They brought these rocks, and they put them on a common table, and they made a vow 
around climate change. So it was a really active kind of experience. Now we had 1,200 other people. And they were Sikhs, and they were Buddhists, and they were Hindus. They were every type, atheists, no religion. They were all there because of climate change. And so we invited each one of them, who had been given a stone before they came in, each one of them to come to this common table. There were ushers, but the ushers completely couldn't manage the crowd. And so it was complete chaos. And it was a wonderful human moment because these people across all these differences, social differences as well as religious differences, had to make space for one another to get to the table. And we did. I thought that with all the trouble that we had gone to to find sounds that people could sing or even hear that crossed most of the traditions that were there, so they wouldn't just be bucking them, but would actually be interacting with them. For all the trouble we took to find this music and all these prayers, the moment I won't forget is the moment when everybody had to make space for other people to get up there to do it. It felt like that's what we're trying to do. That's what rituals are trying to do. Make space for people to achieve their human needs and be present to one another across these differences. So I'm very, very compelled by interfaith worship. I don't think it's easy. I don't think we have solutions. I think the solutions are silo worship. Everybody's got their moment. Ah, and they silo it that way. They silo it Meaning that way. Meaning you have a moment to do it your way. Right. Everyone's patiently waits. Right, right. But we don't enter into each other's ways. Right, right. We're, yeah. we're not. I, I see the power of this moment that you so beautifully described for us with the stones and the access and the interchange that's required to achieve, right. But it sounds like an example of obviating the problem of worship properly understood rather than fully engaging in it. Yes, you could say that. I just thought that uh, it's so difficult that at least we touched one another. No, I see it as a successful obviating. <laughs> it's as like a, it's, yeah, if, uh, but it's not the end of it at all. You know, I really want us to sit down and say, I can pray with a Muslim. I can really pray with that those texts. I can really pray with the Sikh texts because I want to. I want to. I want to access differences. I don't want to say the only way I can do it is the way that I've been trained to do it. Because I think that that's not going to help the world's justice issues either. Do you also find value in the siloed model? Do you see the siloed model as a shoulder-to-shoulder thing, not not the jostling, uh, the, the beauty of working out the chaos, but the ordered, this is my lane, I can't or shouldn't or wouldn't get out of my lane, but maybe your lane is going in the same direction and we can both, is, is that something you also can find in a worship context that you? I, I'll go with anything that we can try. I think there are probably steps that we have to take. And yes, I would welcome that, too, if, because at least people are there present to right. watch. Okay. Yeah, and one never knows when someone really prays. We don't know. Right, who knows? Yeah. Uh, we, we can't always yeah. nail it ourselves for yeah. our own selves. Yeah. Before we return to the Bully Pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, 
Synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning for adults and teens, including online courses, live video interviews, and enhanced podcast episodes with text and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to our podcast. I would like to um, shift now from uh, interfaith worship to feminist uh, liturgy, feminist worship. I'm not sure what the noun is that we want to use for feminist theology. Perhaps you can guide me on the right language. I'd like to ask you to break out for me what might be examples of discrete lessons that men and women respectively need to learn from feminism or feminist religion or feminist theology or feminist worship, however you want to cast it. Your question was that men and women or men need to learn from feminists? That that men and women discreetly and respectively need to learn from what feminism has to offer Mm -hmm. in in the context that we're talking about of, of either liturgy or worship. Women can claim their own authority around what they think and what they do with their bodies because there has been a change with regard to it. For all other reasons, I will isolate at least one reason why Hillary Clinton wasn't elected had to do with her body, her femaleness. Feminist theology or feminist liturgy is only necessary because we are not yet there. I see. And I run a feminist liturgy group for women, and it's existed since 1980. And I thought it was a short-term experience when I gathered these women together with another woman. I thought, this is short-term. We just need to figure out what we would do to help people understand who we are. And then the churches and the synagogues will be glad to learn from us, incorporate it, and we're all done. It has been meeting for 36 years. And your work's still ahead. And the work is still ahead. And it's because the society at large still doesn't break the glass ceiling, to use that metaphor. We think it does. And in some instances, of course, it does. But women still bear children. They still have what people think are mysterious experiences with their bodies, which aren't mysterious at all. Women's bodies are the object of attention in ways that are very difficult for women. We live in a world where women are trafficked. Laborers are trafficked too, but women are trafficked and girls are trafficked. So we're still in a world where women's bodies dictate their dignity. So feminist liturgy is On one hand, to help women to acknowledge honestly what they feel and experience without worrying about the repercussion. It's about trying on new behaviors, developing authority and trying it out and coming back and saying it doesn't work. And and I'm talking about ritually, we would do that. And it's about finding new forms that we can contribute to the larger religious bodies when they're interested to do it. So what, what do men need to learn? I think men should start by listening, just listening to women's stories and believing them. Not because that women are better at telling the stories or anything at all, but men always are the first hands that go up in any conference. You know, there's, we still have these things that, that separate out 
women and men and tombs of authority and who speaks when and whose voice will be heard and what's the quality of the voice, the kind of layered quality of the voice that will be heard. If women have had children and they're speaking to their children and men have children too, but women take a different kind of care still about children, then, you know, they develop a different way of speaking for a while. So you can't match it. You can't, I mean, many women, not all women, many women don't go through this. And so I can talk intellectually. I think there's an intellectual division. And I think that there is a physical division. It marks everything about girls. I listened on NPR. I'm a regular listener at NPR. And I heard this very strong feminist from Boston say why she didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. She said, I believe in this. And she, she sort of spoke every possible feminist statement. And then she said, but was it, when I was a very little girl, I knew that I should never vote for Hillary Clinton, which means there was no substance in her, her choice. What was she trying to articulate? She didn't like her. She didn't like her. And so there was nothing that Hillary Clinton could do to suggest that what she thought at a four or five-year-old girl should change. I get the part of it being substance-free. Yeah. <laughs> but you're also suggesting that this consciousness of girls starts very young. Yes. And that it, 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 can, it can turn against them. Yes. And it does. I mean, there's no, there was not a single substantial reason that she could cite, except that when she was a little girl, she knew that she didn't like her. Right. Well, I've heard variations on that theme from women in regard to this election and in regard to the primary and in regard to her first primary bid against Obama, mm -hmm. where the difference with the man in question wasn't so stark in terms of one being a patent aggressor and another being a perfectly reasonable adult. So I hear you on the daunting weight of this experience of, of, of women's, I guess you're saying, the way they understand their bodies can turn against them. Yes, and turn for them. You know, right, I right, mean, right. both things happen. And I think what feminists are trying to do is to point that way, to use what your understanding of your bodies is for yourself, but you have to always learn the other language, too. To be fluent in it and to be able right. to navigate it. Yeah. Feminist theology is uh, a, just another layer where you, we people, have been all trained to think about this mystery of life, this God, as a transcendent figure. We, have, we give it male pronouns. I mean, here mm -hmm. last night, just last night for the worship services, they had this brand new service and all the all the language for God had male pronouns. Yeah. No, and we consider ourselves among the more right. conscious. Right. No, duly noted. It does bring me to my next question, though, which is that, as I understand it, you're currently writing a book called Worship Without Dominance, which right. is evocative of our last comment. Many of us, I use the word us advisedly, many of us in the reform movement of Judaism, we might be surprised by the time... We, I don't even know what's in the book. I haven't cracked it. You haven't maybe even finished writing it. But the title alone might surprise us because it implies a problem that I think many of us simply don't perceive. If that's the case, if I'm, if I'm projecting accurately onto my, my in-group, does that mean that part of what your book is about is what we might have called 
some time ago, consciousness raising or the work of making people aware of a problem in the first place. Is that is that part of the task of your book there? Yes, it's uh, to make people aware. It's also to try to break through and find models that would satisfy congregations where there is no dominance. I'm not saying there are no leaders, but I am saying that when you walk into a room and you see all the leaders on the top in a kind of elevated way, that's a form of dominance. People give over authority to those people. And I'm interested in people claiming their own authority for what they believe. Not that other people don't have something to say, but I think that we have to change the way we spatially relate to one another and the way in which we accord a certain title, for example. I teach my students that once you walk in through a, a synagogue door, all titles are off. All that matters is that you're a human being yearning to know and to give and to live and to believe. And so I think that the practice that in, in some of the synagogues whereby those who are doctor, MD, or those who are rabbi or cantor, when they die, they have titles, but no one else has titles. And I think, that's interesting, isn't it? In life and death, there are titles. Titles, in some fashion, separate out people. They're intended to. Yes. The question is, why is that deleterious? I can, I can see, I, that was a rhetorical question, I, I can see why it's negative, yeah. but I can also see positives. And What um, would the positive be? It helps me as a patient to go into a doctor's office and by virtue of the title, by virtue of the waiting room, by virtue of the pigskin on the wall, by virtue of all of these things, right. to submit to the doctor's authority. Yes. Moreover, that submission is a counterpart inevitably, as of, except for my lack of imagination, and maybe you can crack open my imagination on this, but it does seem irreducible to me on the face of it that my submission is not merely me taking authority over my choices and conferring trust in someone. It is that, but it is also conferring trust to someone's power. And the minute I do that, that power has been conferred. And like in a synagogue, I could break it off. I haven't given up all my power. And, but that's true in a synagogue, too. But if that doctor tells me to do something, I do it because of a dominant relationship in this instance. Now, am I reading it wrong? Am I reading you wrong? Or is it, would it help me? Yes. I, I'm not suggesting that within the medical field, uh, doctors have a great deal of information, and that's why we're there. What I'm saying is, is that when a person dies and is remembered mm -hmm. for death, that no one else in the whole congregation has a title except for those who have MDs and those who have are rabbis or cantors. Why doesn't the lawyer have one? Why doesn't the professor have one? Why does that, what do you mean they don't have a title? I'm, I'm, they're, I, not na they're not named with a title. So when the list comes out, and we're praying uh, in memory of them, who died this week, everybody is named 
first name and last name except if the person was a rabbi and except if the person was a medical doctor. And I think, why? Why do they have titles and why doesn't everybody else have titles? Then maybe you say Mr. or Ms. or you do but put titles on or take titles off. But that's not my primary goal in writing I, this I, book. I think I had, mis I had misunderstood, I think, what you yeah. were yeah. yeah, it's, uh, no, you, you, you know, I, I have a, an obsession about these things. But the point where worship, worship with, is without boundaries, it's a really, it's an ideal that will probably never be reached. But it seems to me that most of our churches and, and synagogues and all kinds of thing, temples are based on social boundaries, social class. And I think that social class should be broken down in, in places where we are praying as human beings. You think that the very act in the context of prayer should be the ultimate leveler, if nothing else, because it's in, in relation to God who is the ultimate leveler, yes. among other things. Yes, and I think that it shouldn't. we shouldn't have such boundaries within our prayer structure. I'm moved by the assumptions of that you bring to prayer space, which are first and foremost, dare I say even radically, about communion with God, mm -hmm. lowercase c communion. And each other. Right. And that, that's the and each other part that I want to pick up on, mm -hmm. which is the communion with one's community. Mm -hmm. Community is all about these social relationships, including the hierarchies and the baggage that come with them. Mm -hmm. And at some point, especially in an ethnically defined community, such as Judaism, broadly speaking, is. Of course, it's not exclusively that, but, but it's one of the main vectors of being Jewish. We're not always eager, perhaps, to break down social barriers. We're there to affirm social, social constructs in the first place. And I think that that's different from a, from a fundamentally Christian perspective, Christianity itself being very, very much more committed in the foreground of its rhetoric and self-understanding about the faith proposition, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which locates your position much more natively, uh, seamlessly. Mm -hmm. Whereas it feels like there's some seams mm -hmm. uh, as a Jew mm -hmm. hearing you, not because I happen to have a PhD and can try to bully people into calling me doctor, which it would only be a poor attempt because no one would respect it anyway. But the, I don't believe that. <laughs> All right, take that. I, I don't. Uh, yeah, I guess I just want to say that something else might be going on sociologically mm -hmm. that uh, might poke at your assumptions. Mm -hmm. I don't think they challenge your assumptions. I think they... I think that uh, you're right. I think you probably are very right. I would like to say that the good that is done by uh, in Jewish synagogues for having like food pantries and meals right. and all that, it is good, it's absolutely necessary, and people want it. But I think if the people serving them sat down and listened to the people's stories in the midst of eating with them or giving them food, it would change many things. Well, that's a project that I'll try to bring back to my own synagogue. And uh, I thank you very much for poking me. And, uh, and for your poking me. Thank you. taking the time. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me, too. Thank you. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.